Everyone? Greetings from the saints in Bristol Bible Chapel. You get Brian all the time. I'm sure he says it all the time in his Boston accent. Hello. Right. So let's open up our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. This, now the Word of God. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. You know, there is a a problem going on in the world today, and it's an old problem. It's It's the blame game problem where we find that people can do whatever wrong they want, but at least they're not doing the wrong that the other person is doing. Um, In politics, uh, we Democrats might be supportive of such and such, but at least we're not supporting that thing that the Republicans over there do. Or the Republicans, vice versa. You know, we might support this or that, but at least we're not doing what those there Democrats do. And then there's some of us that goes, well, at least I don't vote like you people who are still voting. And then, of course, uh, I mean, that's in politics. Countries do this too. You can have like... uh, some deep Muslim nations look across at the United States and say, you know what, yeah, our people fight for freedom and we wind up killing a few innocents, but at least we're not like that corrupt United States over there. And we could say, oh, United States, you know, yeah, all right. We, we have a culture that's a little loose, right? But at least we don't send terrorists into buildings blowing up innocent people, right? We maybe drop bombs where we don't see them, but we're not like them. But that's the big global picture, right? That's that's really big. Let's bring it home. Let's bring it home. I mean, I hear this all the time with my kids. Uh, Somebody does something wrong, and I point out, what did you do? And they say, yeah, I did that, but at least I'm not like that one. That son of yours, he does some really bad stuff. I'm okay. I'm better than him. Don't we do that in the church too? 
We have, I'm going to use fake examples. I don't know if you have Awana clubs. I don't know if, what you have, all right? So you might have maybe some Awana clubs going on in the church, and you can see some of the people around in the church, and here you are. You don't show up on Sunday mornings because, you know, you are a busy person, and on Sunday mornings you can't make it into the chapel at that time. 9.50 is awful. 9.15 is an awful time. But you know what? These people here that show up at 9.15, they don't come to Awana clubs. I don't see them serving. At least I'm not as bad as them, right? Well, this is what's great about letting a passage like Ephesians 2 speak into our lives, especially when it's such a well-known passage. I mean, Ephesians 2, we hear Ephesians 2 probably every other Lord's Supper, if not every Lord's Supper. And we go, praise the Lord, Ephesians 2, that's awesome. But to let this text, this text written by Paul, but really Paul who is carried by the Holy Spirit to write these down, these very words of God, that is enough for rebuking us, for correcting us, for exhorting us, so that we, the people of God, might be thoroughly equipped and growing in godliness. To let this text speak into our life, it starts to change things. Because, I mean, one of the things when we do this, at least I'm not this person, or at least I'm not like you, or at least I'm not like you. You know, I have my issues, but at least I'm not as bad as this other person. One of the things that we start doing is that we're looking horizontally and we start looking and measuring up ourselves against each other. I saw a brother in the hallway over there. That dude's head was touching over the wall. And I looked at him and I'm like, compared to him, I'm short. And then I remembered, wait a second, I am short. Full on. See, the thing is, when you compare yourself to your left and your right, you start realizing where you think you stand. You know when I'm tall, when I'm really tall, and oh, I can take out kids in a basketball court. I can dunk on a kid when it's like a five-foot rim, right? Because that's, I compared myself to them, and I set the bar at their level. When those little kids are up against me, I can take them out. But if there's somebody taller, I got a real issue. This text is awesome because it doesn't set the bar at the people in the pews next to us. It takes our perspective and focuses us so that we see ourselves on how God sees us. And then you start to see how short you are when the infinite, all-powerful, omnipresent, all-knowing God stands up against you. How do you, how do you measure up? Oh, you fall way short. And that's the beauty of this text. When you let it speak to you. So let us let the text speak to us. Look at what it says here. Paul summarizing the situation of people who think, you know, I'm not as bad as that guy. I have my issues. He says, and you were dead. That's how he summarizes the situation of people. Dead. Can I use an example? If I keeled over right now, right? If I keeled over, I just dropped over here with maybe a heart attack because yesterday I had uh, too much bacon, 
too much pork, too much meat, because it's summer. If I killed over, you will do everything possible to rescue me. Some of you might know CPR. But if you're smart, you'll call 911. Maybe there's an, like an AED device here. That's one of these electronic devices that you put it on somebody's chest. Now, let me tell you, when you take the amount of electricity that's going through those devices and put it on somebody normally, you're probably electrocuting them. All right? It is not a good thing to be sticking those things and just doing it to people randomly. But when you take those things and stick it to a person, like me who is keeled over having a heart attack, you're trying to rescue me. You're doing everything in your power to bring me out of this situation where I'm keeled over and dying. You're shooting electricity through my body. In fact, when you're taught CPR, what they tell you is, if you're doing it right, if you're doing it right, you're doing chest compressions to get the blood to flow through the brain, and if you're doing it right, you're pressing far enough in that you're actually breaking the ribcage to compress the heart. Now, breaking the ribcage of a person is not nice. That is not a good thing. But you're trying to save this person's life. And if I was carted away in an ambulance and taken to the hospital, they will be doing everything in their power to make sure I don't die. They will take maybe a big needle and stick it in my heart to try to make it a start. They will do all sorts of things and prod me. And they'll be up there doing these things. And maybe they'll have to even cut open arteries. Who knows? Really bad stuff. But you know what happens? When they realize the person has died, they stop. They don't do anything else. They look at the clock. They say the time. Time of death. This is the time. Take off their gloves. Wash up. They take the body to the mortuary maybe. Put it in a cool box or something. But they're done. There's nothing you can do with that body. It's over. It's helpless. There's nothing else you can do. You go to the people, the family, and you say, we're sorry for your loss. And this is how the inspired Word of God describes our situation. Not as sick, not as really badly injured, but maybe can get better. And you were dead. Hopeless situation. Not that, not only that, Paul adds insult to injury. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespasses is when you cross over. You cross over the line when there's a boundary and you cross over that boundary. So here is God saying, don't do this and you cross over that. Sin is anything you do, anything you say, anything you think that falls short of God's moral perfection. And Paul says, you were actively dead. That's how he describes us. In your trespasses and sins. You're holding on to these things in which you formerly walked. You were the living, the walking dead. Not like the TV show, not zombies. You were people walking around, says Paul, speaking to these Christians. Before you were saved, you were the walking dead. Active sinners. And your situation, hopeless. You see, there's nobody 
There's no one who can say, you know what, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. Because we are all in this situation, Paul describing to the Ephesian church, you were all dead. And if we bring it to today's world and let it speak to us, none of us can say that we're any better than anyone else. You know what, I was saved when I was eight years old. And I know people that were saved when they were 50. And they lived a hard life, sinning all over the place. And I, an eight-year-old, I didn't do the sins that that person At least I'm not as bad as they were. Oh, wait a second. The text tells me I was equally dead, even at eight. And I was an equal sinner. Maybe the types of sins were different, but the rebellion, the trespassing, the crossing over what God had said, and the sins, the falling short of God's moral perfection, were just the same. You know what I find interesting? When a murderer says, I didn't kill him, a lie is equal to a kid who says, I didn't take the candy that was on the counter. I didn't take that last piece of cake. Or uh, on our taxes, yeah, I did give a little bit more to charity that year. Maybe I can write off a little bit more. You know what? Maybe I can ask somebody for some receipts that I can use to write off for my business. Or, you know what? I really didn't do that part of the job, but I can take credit for it anyway. Equal lies, falling short of the moral perfection of God, and still part of what God says not to do. Do not bear false witness. Don't lie. And then he says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So all of us, every single one of us, described as actively dead, we were walking according to the course of this world. And this whole world is underneath the judgment of God. And Paul says, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Do you know what it says here? The prince of the power of the air, that we were all marching, going head on in active rebellion against God, and the captain of our army was Satan himself, his satanic majesty. That was our situation, no matter what. There's not a single believer today or ever who can say that their previous life was not this. Paul says, and you were all in this situation. He says, verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. You know, there's nothing wrong with desires in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with it. Right now, it's almost lunchtime. And if I started speaking about a sizzling burger on a grill with some crispy bacon, and maybe some extra sharp cheddar melted on that burger. And, and, and maybe some sausages, some Polish sausages on the side. You start to desire. You start thinking about it and going, yeah, I could dig that. There's nothing wrong with the desire in and of itself. If your wife comes up to you one morning, men, and says, honey, look at me. Do you love me? You say, yeah, I love you. Do I look desirable to you? And you say, no, no. She will throw things at you. There is nothing wrong with desire in and of itself. 
But here Paul says, the, we too live in the lust of the flesh, indulging of the desires of the flesh and of the mind. What we were doing before, we were saying, you know what? There is no one above the desires that we have. I've been made this way. Who cares? Maybe by some random processes. I don't know. But I don't care about anything else. I want to satisfy my desires. I just want to satisfy my desires. So a little eight-year-old stealing candy says, I want that candy. I'm getting that candy. And just satisfying the desires of his heart. And that murderer saying, I want to kill. I'm going to kill. Satisfying the desires of their heart. And those desires are not being controlled and guided by the, the guidelines or the restrictions that God who made us has set up. No, we're just living according to the desires. And that's when it's a problem. When you start looking at those things that satisfy the desires and divorce it from God. Because in that case, Paul describes it in another passage, our God becomes our belly. Ooh, and that's a scary thing. That's a scary thing when no longer are you controlled by the head, but you're controlled by the belly. Whatever you want, you'll kill whoever you want, you crawl over whoever you want, you'll say whatever you want, as long as your belly is satisfied. And Paul says that before, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And this is the same, this is just another way of saying what he said in the previous verse, when he says that the spirit of the prince of the power of the air was working in the sons of disobedience, even as the rest. This is how the Holy Scriptures describes every unbeliever. The walking dead, the active rebellion of the dead with Satan as their captain, satisfying the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Now that's not to say that wrath has given birth to these children. Nor is it when it says sons of disobedience as if disobedience gave birth to these people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that what we were, were people who were defined by the fact that God has to pour out His wrath and defined by the fact that we were disobedient. We speak this way at home all the time. When you see my kids, for example, you see them and you go, oh, those are raised kids. And you might be thinking because of the curly hair or the big eyes. You go, oh, they look like him. But when Paul is saying these sons of disobedience is that they're acting in this sort of way. They are acting as if they deserve wrath. They are acting as if they are the very children of disobedience, as if disobedience is their parents. And you see this example at your home. Um, maybe uh, some of us have seen our parents fight, or maybe some of us married folk have been fighting over something the kids have done, and maybe the wife turns to the husband and says, you see what he's doing? And you go, yes, that's your son. Now, what she doesn't mean is, I don't know where he came from. You gave birth to him, and that's your kid. That's not what she means. She's saying he's acting just like you. So when Paul says that these people are sons of disobedience, they are children of our ass, these are people who are acting out like they're part of the disobedient, wrath-mandated family. And it was all of us. We were all doing this. 
Can I take a moment of application before we go further with the text? Notice the past tense. You were. Now that one maybe isn't in the original text. It's really maybe you being. But in the verse uh, 3 it says, we too all formerly lived. Do you see it says that? And we were by nature, were, past tense, by nature, children of wrath. We were those things. We formerly lived those ways. Because Paul is writing to Christians. And he's saying, this was your past. This is how you were. There's none of you that you can say you were better than anybody else. You were this way. And here's a moment of application. I don't, I don't want to question your salvation. But there might be people here today, this morning, who might be actively living today, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. Defined today by being disobedient. Today. Now, I don't know if there's anyone in here like that. There might be somebody here who is an unbeliever, and today you are living this way. For those people, I'm calling you, Paul sees the situation and says, this is a bad situation. You are being set apart for wrath. If you're part of this active rebellion, you're going, uh, you're going with the course and the, the direction of the world by which God says this world is appointed for judgment. So you here who might be an unbeliever, you, if you are living this way and you're an unbeliever, you are living that way. This describes your situation, but a moment of application then also for the believers. If you're living this way today as a believer, as a confessing believer, that you have said, I have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. You believe that you have trusted your, the Lord as your Savior. If you're living this way today, examine yourself. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, examine yourself. Make sure that you're of the faith. If you're actively living this way, question yourself, wait a second, am I living according to indulging the desires of the flesh and of my mind? Am I actively being disobedient? Am I actively trespassing and sinning? If I'm doing these things and I'm saying I'm a Christian, I must repent. That is to stop, to ask the Lord for forgiveness Turn around and go the opposite direction. Christians are not defined in this way. Today, if you're doing these things, stop. Or question if you're a believer at all. But let's move on. Because then Paul says here, because that's a horrible situation. That is a hopeless situation. But God, being rich in mercy. Now, in verse 7 of chapter 1, if you turn with me real quick there, verse 7, Paul says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. So, Paul speaking about the riches of God's grace, that's his, his, uh, uh, his giftingness, his giftedness to us, his riches in that, he's lavished us this grace, and then we have redemption. We've been bought back by God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we have forgiveness of our sins. 
But here Paul says, God rich in mercy. Rich in mercy because of his great love. What is it to be rich in mercy? Well, the word mercy, because uh, we come from a, a background that's very uh, English, this area is sometimes even called New England, we hear the word mercy and we start thinking sometimes of the old, like the old medieval days where you have a serf in front of the king and he says, Lord, have mercy. And the king doesn't give him what he deserves. And that's what we often say what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. But let's take a moment and look at the book of Luke, book of Luke, chapter 17, to see what mercy is, uh, what mercy is in the New Testament here. In Luke 17, verse 11, where this is the passage when there's 10 lepers that were, and leprosy is a skin disease, horrible skin disease, uh, um, who were cleansed by Jesus. But verse 11, while he, Jesus, was on his way to, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now when they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. What they were not saying is, Jesus, Master, don't give us what we deserve. That's not what they were saying. You see, they were already leprous. They had leprosy. In fact, if they didn't say anything, they would have been still in a state of leprosy. But when they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, they're saying, Jesus, Master, show compassion to our situation. We're in a bad situation. Show compassion to us. Look upon us. That's what he's saying. So go back to um, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. God being rich in mercy, in compassion, in that concern for others, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. This is awesome. And we heard it in the Lord's Supper this morning as well. This is awesome. That God, who is rich in compassion, didn't just say, you know what? I'm going to look at your situation with pity and concern and wash away your sins. He didn't only do that. He didn't only say, look, I'm going to look at your situation with compassion and forgive you for your sins. I'm going to give you a blank slate. He didn't do that either. In fact, that would probably be pretty depressing if God said, okay, you guys are bad, you're in a bad spot, you are awful people, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to wipe it all clean, and I'm going to reset the clock, and now go on, try again. How long would we have lasted with that clean slate? You turn around, forgiven, awesome. I am so awesome right now. Boom, you sinned, and that's it, the slate's dirty again. You gotta turn around, oh man, could you, could you hook me up again because I didn't get three feet? You see, when God is rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he didn't only forgive us of our sins, he didn't only clean us, he didn't only clean away the sins, he says even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. He gave us life. He didn't say, alright, have it, have it, go on, you try. 
He Himself made us alive. And not by ourselves. He says, together with Christ. So constantly throughout the New Testament and in this passage, we see that we are risen in Christ, that we are seated in Christ, says the book of Colossians, in heavenly places. We're seated with Him, that we are living in Him. We find out in, in the book of Romans that God, what He does, He pours the Holy Spirit within His people so that we are invigorated with a new and foreign life. In 1 Corinthians, He says that the righteousness of God is put in us so that Christ's righteousness is actually ours and our sin is imputed on Christ, it's mind-blowing. But we're walking around as little Christs because of what God has done. And let's not, let's not balk at what's happening here. God in the second person of the Trinity, God in the second person of the Trinity, came and did this work so that we could live in Him and then takes the third person of the Trinity, places it inside of us, places Him inside of us, and then calls us together, and then we're going to be with the entire Trinity forever. That's massive. That we see texts in the New Testament, like in Romans, that we're being conformed to the very image of the Son. So God did this. He took around our hopeless situation where we were not just sick, we were not just injured, we were dead. Now what Paul doesn't say here is that part of us was dead and part of us was made alive. That's not what he says. And that sometimes the teaching goes, ah, you know what, it was your spirit part that was dead and your spirit part was made alive and now you're okay because you know what, your flesh, it sort of, it could go either way. No, no, that's not what he says. You, you were dead and you were made alive. And in fact, what we go on to see that we were made alive in Christ, there is a day coming where our very bodies will be made alive. So that our bodies that are buried are not sitting here to just rot away. But God, who is so concerned with saving all of who we are, will raise our bodies so that we can be with Him forever. But today He has done this already. He's made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we're seated there so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what's so mind-blowing here. That God didn't just wipe away the slate. He didn't just forgive you your sins. He didn't just uh, pour out His righteousness in you. He didn't just pour out the, the Holy Spirit inside of you so you could walk in newness of life. He didn't just do that. He didn't only just seat you in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He didn't only do that. What He said is like, He said, you know what? I'm going to show you now for all eternity the goodness that I am showing you already in time, a little bit right now. So for all eternity, we will see the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But let's, let's put that in, in years, alright? Let's put that in years. Here on this planet, you have a few 
years of maybe Awana clubs or potlucks or serving at a soup kitchen. Those things happen here, and then they go away. They happen. And you see sometimes the goodness of God in some of these things. You're working in the Awana clubs, and some kids are saved. Praise the Lord. You're working at the soup kitchen, and somebody comes up to you and says, I thank Jesus for what you've done. You're working here, or you're working there. You're seeing the goodness of God. But what this text is saying is that in 2 million A.D., 2 million years into the future, when this world is long gone and those works are long gone, right? You don't have soup kitchens around anymore and you're seated in heaven, you're still looking and learning about the surpassing riches of God's kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Still. There's not going to be a point, maybe 2 million and 1 AD, when you go, well, I guess we got it all. I mean, God, that you're a pretty nice guy, but it took us two million and one years to get it. So, thanks. Let's go do something else. That's never going to happen. God is infinite. You're going to spend all eternity being blown away by the fact that God's goodness poured out for you so that you can be in eternity with him and doing whatever he has us doing. That's amazing. And sometimes we have a, 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 like a medieval view of heaven that we'll be sitting in clouds playing harps. I don't even like a harp in real life. I don't want to hear it in heaven. Um, but if we see what, and you look at Ephesians chapter 3, the idea that we're being equipped on this planet so that we could grow to the full stature of the head, I have a, a feeling, that don't, we can talk afterwards, but that we will be doing some sort of work in, in heaven, in eternity, at the very least in the millennium. But, at, but I think we're going to be figuring out things. And I think part of that figuring out is learning about God's goodness. And someone's going to be studying God's goodness. And someone's studying God's love. That's what I think. That's what I think. It's not scriptural. That's what I just think. So you could talk about it later. But the point is, in 2 million 1 AD, you're not going to be done with the surpassing riches of God's grace. That's why the word surpassing is there. You know, finding the riches of grace, uh, of God's goodness and his kindness, well, that's awesome. You got, find it, oh, it's rich. But surpassing riches means you find it, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. And you're seeing that for all eternity. The riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know what kindness is? Um, kindness, unfortunately, we turn it sometimes to, uh, to the term being nice. That's what we, oh, that person is so nice. And usually, nice means they're smiling at me when they say things. Or sometimes they welcome me every morning. They're so nice. But you don't know the inside of them. Somebody who could be nice to your face could be inside saying, ooh, every time I see you, I want to slap your face. But, in, but they're nice because you see teeth, right? But kindness is different. Kindness is that internal compassion that pours out into some sort of action for another. So sometimes you'll have this happen. I don't know if this ever happened to you. It's happened to me when I've been on a, on a line, uh, on, a, on the queuing up there for the McDonald's to get a burger. And um, yes, I'll sometimes eat a cheeseburger from McDonald's. Judge me all you want. And I go up to the window and the person, in, they say, oh, it's been paid for. What? 
yeah, that, that, that person up there, they just, they paid for you. And I'm like, wow, that was really kind. They, they don't know me. They had no reason to do it. They just did it. And in fact, if they looked in their rearview mirror and saw this face, they had no reason to be kind to me. But they went and did it anyway. That's really kind. It has nothing to do with their niceness. I don't even see their face as their car drives off. But they did this. And here's God. The riches of His grace in kindness toward us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. We're in active rebellion against God. And God, in His goodness, says, I'll give you my son so that you can live and be with me and know about me forever. That's huge. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And sometimes this passage is unfortunately mistranslated to be something like this. For, you, for by grace you have been saved um, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith is not even of yourselves. That faith is a gift of God that he's given to you so that no one can boast. That's how unfortunately has been translated, but um, applied, misapplied. But the passage is saying, here is salvation. It is a gift of God. And this gift is a package. This gift is God giving this gift and receiving this gift through Trusting God. This is salvation. And let me tell you, this is, uh, 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 forgive me, receiving this by just trusting is a silly thing. Trust? And that's it? That's not doing anything. That's a response. If someone's trustworthy, I trust them. Here's an example. Uh, Mike, my kids, I can tell them all I want. Kids, if you're nice and good and kind and you listen today in chapel, I'll get you ice cream after church. And they can trust me. But if we get into the car and they annoy me, and then I say, that's it, no ice cream for anybody, they start to cry. But you told us we're getting ice cream. Well, you got me angry. You made a mistake. You trusted me, a human who gets angry. You see, trust is a, it's a fickle thing. When you can trust people here horizontally, you can trust your kid to take out the trash. And then you look out the window and the trash is still there as the truck is driving off. Right? Trust is a weak thing. But the fact that God says, I'm giving you this salvation. This is me doing this. Trust me. The response to him is not a work. It's just laying your hope on the fact that what he said is true. And then it's up to him to complete it. You know what? If God was the devil, that would be a horrible thing. But thank God he isn't. And he has proved himself trustworthy by sending his son to die for us. If God was so willing to take up flesh... To die in our place? Well, I think I can trust him when he says, whosoever believes on him will be saved. Or whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It is God's gift. Not as a result of works. It's not something that you can earn. There's no one who can say, you know what? I've done it. 
I've done it, I've done it, I've done enough good to merit the eternal goodness of God. I've done it. I've done, I've gone to church just around amount of times. I've spoken good things to people just the right amount of times. I've done it. I've earned it. There's no one who can do that. Think about this. Let's put this in perspective. I'm going to go to church every Sunday so that I can go to heaven. Oh, great. You picked 52 Sundays in a year so that you can get heaven to get to heaven. Wow. That's amazing. Oh, multiply it by the years of your life. 52 Sundays by 10. Oh, 520 Sundays. Fantastic. And that's all it takes to get to heaven, really. Well, you better add a few more days. If God's going to have you in there for all eternity, and is this going to be a, a, a tit-for-tat trade, is he really going to see your 520 days as equal to all eternity? Oh, no. I don't think so. Oh, you know what? I'll, I'll do good things for him after work. After work, you know, because I have to work from 9 to 5. So after work, I'll do good things for him for a few hours. Oh, that'll do it. A few hours every day after work, that'll get you to heaven. That's enough for God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who had, uh, always existed and always will exist, to put on flesh and to come to the planet to die. Yeah, that's enough. Yeah, that'll do it. To still bear the bark, the marks of our sin for all eternity, uh, the marks on his hand and his side. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. You totally earned it with those two hours. Every day after work. No, it's not enough. There's never enough works that will ever happen that will result in the meriting of God's goodness and grace. No one can boast. No one can brag. No one can say, I, like Frank Sinatra, did it my way. No one can say it. But we are His workmanship. We have not uh, earned any of this by works, but we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Before, we walked according to the lust and the desires of our flesh and mind. We walked according to the course of this world. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We walked in active rebellion, but now being saved and brought to life together with Christ, we walk in a new way. We walk according to these works that have been prepared beforehand so that we can do them. You know who gets this um, this idea of this works prepared beforehand so that we can do them? I, I think kids who play video games. Now, if you go back to my days, those days would have been like uh, Super Mario Brothers. All right? Um, that's an old game for some kids. But I'm talking about the sort of games when you're running around in the game and you're hitting bricks or you're hitting walls or jumping on things and coins come out and the kid smiles and finds these things and it's always a surprise and they try to get more of these coins and things. That idea is sort of what's happening here. That God created us and he created us and he created the opportunities to do good works all over, all around. Everywhere, there's an opportunity for good works. And he's saying, they're out there. He's prepared them beforehand. Go and find them and do them because you've been built for that. You, didn't, you weren't built to use those things to earn salvation. No way. But those works are out there. Go find them. He set them out. 
and you are his workmanship, you've been made to go do these works, go and do them. This is great because that means that no one in the assembly can say, I work in Awana, at least I work in Awana, and those people, they only do soup kitchen, or those people, they only do this ministry, or those people, they do that other ministry. No one can say that because all of those works are God's prepared works. They're an opportunity for any of us believers to do those things God would have us to do. You know what's mind-blowing about this? This means that it's not a job for the elders to come up with the good works. Elders coming from their ivory tower. Today we will do a good work. And whoever wants to volunteer and has some time available, join us in this good work. Well, what if I can't make that good work? Oh, good news. There's more good works. There's so much good works. There's good works coming out of our ears if you're willing to find them and do them. This means it's not up to the elders to find the good works. There are good works that you have found and you can bring. There are other works that other Christians have found and can bring. And you can join together and do these works or you can do them separately because God has put these works out beforehand and you're just finding them like coins under a brick. Bing! Good works. Bing! Good works. Bing! Good works to do. This is great because that means it's not the elder's job to find the good works. Nor is it like you can outsource your responsibility and say, this church, you know, like, they all do this, this, or that, but it's not like me. At least I know to do this good work. No, praise the Lord. You do that good work and you're part of the assembly who's also doing these other good works. Bring them in so that we can pray together about them. And don't make it something to fight over, but actually make it something to praise the Lord over. He's given us these opportunities to do this. Isn't that awesome? I thank the Lord for people who know how to, who are handy. People who know how to use a hammer and things like that without hurting their fingers. I'm an artist by uh, historical trade, so these hands really are not calloused by the, the, the nails or splinters or wood. Uh, so if you would have me at a job site, you would probably have one of the worst people to do these things. I think someone mentioned doing roofing this morning. I would not be the one doing roofing. No, 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 not me. I would be the one sliding off the roof onto the ground below. But I could probably pick up the nails with a magnet or something like that. You see, there's always something that can be done. And there's those people who God has equipped to do that. That's fantastic. And they're in the assembly. God has saved them. And they're doing that work up there. That's fantastic. And some of you have a different opportunity to work. Some of you, ooh, I thank the Lord for some of you who are awesome cooks. Ooh, and I bet some of you do too when you have your fellowship dinner and you come in and you start smelling the food cooking and you say, oh, thank the Lord for that thing that's cooking out there. That person who does that taco uh, bean soup is wonderful. Praise the Lord for them. It's a good work. Even the fact of babysitting when a mom who has been struggling with the kids all week and she comes into the chapel and she, she just sits and wants to hear the message for a few 35, 40 minutes, this guy's going on and on. Even that chance, that's a good work. So walk in them. No one can say that they're better than anybody else. We've all been saved by grace. 
all of our situations was falling short of God's glory. All of us were defined by being dead in our trespasses and sins. And any of us who are saved are seated today in Christ Jesus. Man, you have the opportunity to work right here on this planet. So go and do it. Get busy. Let's praise the Lord and thank Him for the time. Blessed Lord God, we do thank You for the Scriptures. When we see this text that Paul has written to Ephesus, and we know that the Holy Spirit guided the writing of these words, we, we are encouraged when we can see and hear these words every Sunday, but when we hear it and let it speak into our life, we can feel the very change that's being affected in us so that our minds turn to honestly examine ourselves and to honestly assess the situations in front of us, to understand where we've come and what you have done to save us and then what you have prepared in front of us to walk through. Oh God, we do thank you for the many works that you put before us. Sometimes we're so blinded by our own situation that sometimes we don't see these opportunities. And we pray that you give us eyes to see, to go out and do these works, whatever they may be, from small to large. Even the fact of picking up chairs, a good work, helping out someone else when they can't do it. So we thank you, Lord God, for doing this, for showing us this in this text. And we pray and ask that you work in our, work in our lives, apply this text to our life. Let us see the opportunities in our day-to-day and every moment and control us so that we're not proud, but that we see that these aren't works that we've come up with, but you yourself have done this. So watch over us, we pray, as we go home or to whatever work you would have us do today. We pray this in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.